When you hear, that is if you're interested in the stock market and investing, when you hear Warren Buffett give a warning about uh, upcoming potential problems in the financial world, you, you tend to pay attention, don't you? Uh, or, or choose your, your financial advisor. You pay attention. When John Wooden would speak about the condition of college basketball or the, the concerns of coaching college basketball, anybody who was interested in college basketball would perk up, they would listen. Because John Wooden is an icon, he's like best ever. And so when the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, gives a warning about spiritual life what is it that Christians ought to do? <laughs> Perk up, right? Pay attention. Tune in. Uh, maybe be introspective. Maybe consider what it is that Jesus is saying. If you have a copy of the Bible in your hands, I want to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 11. And I'm going to read for you our passage today with a little bit of context um, and give you a chance to consider what Jesus is saying. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12, and we're going to focus on verses 20 through 25, but I'm going to read 12 through 25 for you. And this, mind you, is the king of the universe, the, the head of the church, the lover of your soul, giving spiritual warning. Okay? On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing the, in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he would find anything on it. When he came to it and found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he, and he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. <clears throat> and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple and he was teaching them and saying to them is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations but you have made it a den of robbers and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching and when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that, that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whoever asks um, in prayer, believe that you have it, received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is not uh, an obscure text in Scripture. We're not digging through the, the annals of the uh, minor prophets. We're, we're talking about Jesus Christ's comments in the Gospel of Mark, which are, by the way, recorded in two of the other three Gospels. And so this is not an obscure passage, and, it, and amazingly, uh, this passage has been routinely misinterpreted um, to the hurt of the church. 
and individual Christians. But here we have in front of us a curse that Jesus spoke, and it's a curse not only to the people that were hearing it, but a curse to anyone who would feign religious interests. Anyone who would pretend to be concerned about their spiritual life and really in their heart not being so. So we need to be concerned with this warning against apathetic, ritualistic, and shallow worship. We have to be extra attentive because the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, is speaking about spiritual things. This goes way beyond the influence of John Wooden on college basketball or Warren Buffett in the financial world. This is the God of the universe speaking about spiritual matters. So, the attentive believer, the, the true Christian, antenna will go up when Jesus speaks as such things. And what I just read for you speaks of important matters, critically important matters. The issues of faith, of forgiveness, of prayer are all addressed by Jesus in this short passage and all critical to the Christian life. For example, Jesus makes a direct connection between a vibrant spiritual life, which is based on faith, and a forgiving spirit. In other words, we can claim to follow Jesus, but can we overlook offenses from people in our church, in our homes? We claim to follow Jesus, but do we follow Jesus? This is something that Jesus demands of his followers forgiveness. When you commit yourself to a local church, you are committing yourself to a life of forgiveness. This is one of the commitments that we make in our Sun Valley Church covenant, which we'll be repeating at our annual meeting here in about an hour. So many Christians get their nose out of joint over petty offenses in the church. She didn't say hi to me in the lobby. No one ever acknowledges my great sacrifices that I make. The pastor's sermon offended me. Blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on in the church. <laughs> so have you ever considered the possibility that God may put you in relationships and bring you to this particular local church to deepen your faith? <laughs> he may actually send offenses your way to teach you to forgive. If you've been married for more than three months, you understand this. In this passage, Jesus also taught of the importance of having faith when you pray. He also taught of the abundance of grace for all who put their trust in God. If you didn't know any better, you'd be tempted to think that this passage is included by Mark to act as a filler, like he had to, he had to have at least three pages in his English high school report, so he adds filler here. I mean, it is a short gospel, after all. If he's in competition with Luke, he loses. Maybe this, this is him making an attempt at having some substance, but we do know better. This isn't that. There is no filler in the Bible. Every word is important. These aren't unrelated issues that we're reading about here. So let's figure it out. In your bulletin, you'll have two main points, out with the old, second, in with the new. And these seemingly unrelated topics that Jesus addresses here, the curse of the fig tree, 
the cleansing of the temple, the command to have faith, the abundance of grace, and the necessity of forgiveness are all intricately related. Each of these topics are intentionally joined together to teach the new order that Jesus is initiating at this moment in time in the first century. He's doing away with the old, which was represented by a cursing of that fig tree and the death of that fig tree, which equaled the cursing, which I dealt with last week, cursing and death of Jewish religion. And he's dealing with the initiating of a new order based on faith and forgiveness. These comments here that we see in the text are all related to this matter, away with the old and in with the new. The old order was based on the physical, the external. The new order is based on spiritual, on, the, on faith of the believer, which overcomes insurmountable odds like being accepted by God. It includes also the Christian life based on faith that is sustained by grace and characterized by forgiveness. So the cursing of the fig tree was not some kind of childish temper tantrum uh, that Jesus threw because he didn't get a snack that he was hoping for. Um, all aspects of this story are part of Jesus' communication about the death of Judaism and the birth of Christianity. Put another way, out with the old, the obsolete, the lifeless Judaism, and in with the new and vibrant and life-giving Christianity, or out with the old covenant and in with the new covenant. This was the week, of course, you remember, that Jesus and his disciples ate the Last Supper, in which he announced the inauguration of the new covenant that was what? Made in his blood, right? So I think, I think that the secondary elements of Jesus' teaching here in this text, which people mis misinterpret regularly, uh, are on the surface, um, but they're secondary. Um, they've been misinterpreted and even used by false teachers to place spiritual burdens on their people. They say things like, if you just have enough faith, you will be cured of your cancer. You've heard these things. Or the reason you didn't get the raise that you were hoping for and praying for was because you didn't have enough faith. Jesus said to simply not doubt and believe and it will come to pass. Evidently, you doubted and you didn't believe. You didn't get the raise. Your fault. Right? This is called the name it and claim it doctrine, which is not so uncommon in our day. Just tell God what you want and it will be yours if you have enough faith. Sorry to say that God is not a genie in a bottle. Jesus, though, here in these verses did say that faith is what it takes to experience great things in your spiritual life, didn't he? If you want to experience great things in your spiritual life, it'll take faith. We, we, we have to at least take that away from the surface in this text. But moving mountains into the sea is a use of hyperbole to make a point. Faith is the basis of the new paradigm of relating to God. And talk about great things, we can now relate to God, which was unheard of in Jesus' day. Unheard of in the Old Testament. You had to leave that with the priest. You just came and did your external things and hoped for the best. But Jesus here says, have faith in God. So this isn't a 
a physical thing that that he was dealing with here. He was, he was getting rid of the physical. The, the primary emphasis of Jesus' teaching in this passage is focused on the initiation of the new paradigm, the new order, or the new way to relate to God. We can find these primary things in Jesus' words. For example, we see that Jesus responded to Peter's comment about the withered tree with an exhortation to have faith in God. And faith, of course, is not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. The old temple became obsolete at this point in history. God would no longer be confined to that geographical location or bless that institution. Things were changing right before our eyes here in this text. And by the way, this was also part of the conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman in John 4, if you recall. Remember, she argued that you, where, where we should worship either in Samaria or down in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, it's not about that anymore. He says, those who worship God will worship him in spirit and truth. Things were changing here at this time. You remember the tabernacle, which was that place of meeting with God in a portable tent in the wilderness. Remember that? That, that tent continued on into uh, Israel's first hundred years. Um, and in fact, when King David was king, he, he, was, he was worshiping in this tent. It wasn't a building, it was a tent, which was the same tent that they used in the wilderness, the tent of meeting. And it wasn't until Solomon's day that, that Israel received a physical building. You've heard of Solomon's temple. It was a glorious building, but Jesus was saying that the new way of fellowship with God won't be in a physical place, whether it's the tabernacle or even the temple. It's not physical, and neither is it that relationship with God external any longer. It's not about crossing your T's and dotting your religious I's. No, it's not external. That's passing away. The temple, in fact, was a beautiful building. It was intended by God to induce the worship of his people. The, the temple was specifically constructed to picture Jesus Christ and God's ultimate plan of fellowship with his people. I've taught a, a class here at, at Sun Valley on the temple, and it is a glorious subject. When you can see all the elements, all the, the pictures of Jesus Christ, even in the Old Testament tabernacle, in the tent. But most Jews never understood these pictures. Instead of, their, instead of seeing the, the beauty of Christ within their worship, they quickly became ritualistic and lifeless and external in their worship. They thought that worship was crossing their T's and dotting their I's. It's because their leaders taught that. In verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, I believe Jesus was referring to a specific mountain. He says, this mountain, not mountains, like we've heard, faith moves mountains. Well, maybe. No mountains have been moved, as far as I know, in human history. So what is Jesus saying here? He said, this mountain. I believe that this statement, this mountain, was a reference to Mount Zion, 
where, where these men were standing at the very moment of this comment. If you say to this mountain, be moved and cast into the sea, it will be done for you. Jesus was announcing a new paradigm, a, a new way to relate to God. Mount Zion, throughout Israel's history, referred to their relationship with God, the, the meeting place, the temple mount, Mount Zion. Jesus said, if you cast this mountain into the sea, he was doing away with this mountain as the center of religious practice. The old way of worship would be cast into the sea, as it were. The new way of worship in spirit and truth, which he told the woman in John 4, would replace the old. The old temple and all of its practices, external practices, would be destroyed. The new place of worship, which is where? In the hearts of the believers in G of Jesus Christ, Paul tells the Corinthians. Uh, that's the place of new, that's where worship would take place from here on. God would no longer be confined to a geographical location. He would reside in the spiritual hearts of his redeemed people. From now on, the spiritual and internal were priority. Not the physical location, not the external. So this is where we come now to the in with the new. In with the new. Jesus was saying that the effectiveness of prayer would no longer be dependent on the temple or its sacrifices. When Jesus would die on the cross, access to God would be open to all who would simply come to him by faith and depend on his forgiveness granted through his son, Jesus Christ. There's the new order, the new covenant, the new way. The old is dying away like the fig tree in the temple between the holy place and the most holy place. You remember what was there, right? What was between the holy place and the most holy place? A thick curtain, right, yes. In Israel's history, the presence of God resided, resided behind the curtain in the most holy place. In the Ark of the Covenant, that's where the, the presence of God existed in Israel's history. The Shekinah glory. That special and holy room was entered only once per year and only by the high priest. You knew this, right? And so the only one who had access to God was the holiest man in the nation, supposedly, the high priest. But the moment Jesus died on the cross, the symbol of that restricted access, which was the curtain, was torn from top to bottom. Remember this? Yes. Symbolizing that now a new way was open to commune with God and was accessible by anyone at any time as long as they came by faith. <laughs> Hebrews 10.20 Not external stuff, not geographical stuff, by faith in the heart of anyone who believes. This is a new way, isn't it? <laughs> Listen to what it says in Hebrews 10.20, by a new and living way that he, who Jesus Christ opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. When his flesh was ruined on Calvary's cross is when that, when that curtain literally tore in two from top to bottom so that access was available to all of us, no longer just the high priest. 
no longer just the special frozen chosen. No, all of us, all of us. Everything was changing in real time at the moment when Jesus was speaking these words here in Mark 11. The old is gone, the new has come. Can we say praise God to that? Yes, praise God, I'll say it myself, praise God. If you've embraced the person and work of Jesus Christ, your relationship with God is based on faith and is marked or demonstrated by what Jesus said in verse 25. Look there. And whenever you stand praying, wherever you want to pray, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Unfortunately, this verse has also been misunderstood and misrepresented by many. But, but what I want you to hear is that if you believe that God has forgiven your sins, you'll be quick to forgive others' sins against you. This is what Jesus is saying. This new way of relating to God is based on faith and results in a forgiving heart. That's what you'll have. The new character quality that Jesus is describing here is experienced by all who have experienced the forgiveness of God. Have you experienced the forgiveness of God? Then you'll be quick to forgive those who offend you, who wrong you. So we see right off the bat that this is a spiritual thing. Faith results in forgiveness. I want to explain that to you. So we who believe in Jesus Christ are the temple of the Holy Spirit, as I said earlier. We believe in Jesus Christ by faith. Have faith in God, Jesus said to Peter and his friends. And faith, of course, is something spiritual, not physical. The Old Testament believers had faith to some degree, but it was definitely secondary. Their primary attention was on obedience to the law and fulfilling the requirements of that law. That was their focus. So this religious system that was passing away centered on the temple and was physical in nature and caused their relationship with God to be based on externals, which turned into formality, which turned into displeasure for God. Just do the steps and you'll be fine, I can hear parents saying to Jewish children. Just do the steps. Cross the T's, dot the I's, come on. Let's do it. Who cares where your heart is? <laughs> was actually taught to Jewish children. But now God requires faith, and there's two kinds of faith that we know of in Scripture. They're related, but they're different to a degree. First, there is living faith that believes in God's ability to accomplish his purposes in our lives. God's strong enough to do what he wants, right? He can heal us of cancer if he wants to. He can heal our marriages if he wants to. He can give us raises in our jobs if we want to. He can keep us healthy and so forth and so on if he wants to. He has the power, ability to do that. That's living faith. It's the kind of faith that Jesus expects of those he healed in his ministry. Do you believe that I can do this? Remember him asking those people? And then what did he say to them once they were healed? Your faith has made you whole. You believe that this could happen, and it did. But the other kind of faith is saving faith, and it's the focus of Paul's writings for the most part. It's the kind of faith that is a gift from God to those whom he will save. 
For example, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work so that you can't boast. It's, it's a gift, but this gift actually saves you. You can now exercise faith in the work of Christ on your behalf because God gives you the ability to do it. And then in Romans 10, 17, Paul says this to the Roman church. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It comes via the words of God on your heart. That, that's where the gift of faith comes from. Both kinds of faith, saving and living faith, are now what defined this new way to relate to God. You will have both in the new way, in the new paradigm, in the new covenant. You will have living faith that has been based on saving faith. If you have been saved by the grace of God, by faith, which was a gift, you will have living faith. You will believe that God can do what he wants to do in your life and in the lives of others. Have faith in God. And so this new way to relate to God by faith, which is an internal thing, is the only acceptable way forward. Things are changing. And because of the death of Jesus Christ, which permanently takes away the sins of anyone who will completely embrace him by faith, the access to God is fully available. The curtain has been torn. Hebrews 11:6. We read that twice this morning. I'll not read it again. But secondly, this is an internal reality that's pictured. Jesus pictures this internal reality for us and for these guys here in Mark 11 by talking about forgiveness. If there's one thing that can't be faked, at least internally, is forgiveness. Oh, you can say, oh, I forgive them, but in your heart, man, you hold resentment and bitterness. But internally, it's not fakeable. Either you have forgiven someone or you haven't. Right? We are confident that the new way of relating to God is internal and not external because of this content right here. Verse 25. Forgiveness is on the table. And you can't fake true forgiveness. It's internal. It's either there or it's not. You've either forgiven or you haven't. Right? You can, like I said, you can certainly say words, but it's in the heart where true forgiveness takes place. Which is why Paul said this in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is why you can have a forgiving spirit, because God in Christ has forgiven you. And if there's anybody who doesn't deserve forgiveness, it's you. Right? It's me. And so when someone comes along and offends me with some stupid comment or some petty action, I can readily, even joyfully, forgive them because of what I've experienced. I've, I've been forgiven so much more than which has been offensive to me, personally. Oh, my word. Yeah. So the spirit of forgiveness is now a primary identifying mark of those who have, been in, who have embraced Jesus Christ by faith. In John 13, Jesus said that love would be an identifying mark of his followers. And here in Mark 11:25, Jesus said that forgiveness is also a defining mark of his followers. Are you a genuine Christian? Are you a genuine Christian? Here's the test. Listen. Do you love others? And is it 
provable? And have you forgiven others? If so, you're saved. If not, you're not. <laughs> there you go. That's what Jesus is saying. If you truly have embraced me by faith, you'll love one another and you'll forgive one another. Those are the two identifying marks of those who follow Christ. Do a quick test, right where you sit. This would be a good day to have communion, wouldn't it? Yeah. See, being forgiven teaches us to forgive. First, Jesus says that faith is essential to the success of our prayers. Then he adds, no prayer will be heard, which does not come from a forgiving heart. Our prayers must not only be earnest, fervent, and sincere, and in the name of Christ, but Jesus here says they must contain one more ingredient. They must come from a forgiving heart. We have no right to look for mercy if we're not ready to extend mercy to others. So, have you struggled to see growth in grace? Have you struggled to see growth in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus? Is your spiritual life languishing? Do you lack vibrancy in your worship, whether it's corporate in this setting or private in the closet of your home? Well, maybe this morning the Holy Spirit is tracing your spiritual problems back to your unwillingness to bear with one another and forgive one another. Is that possible? If you lack that relationship with God that you desire and that you see in others, Maybe the Holy Spirit is helping you walk backwards to the, the orig original place, that, that place where all of it's supposed to begin. By embracing the love and forgiveness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. If you have done that, the Holy Spirit enters, your, actually he enters before you do that because that's why you do it, right? We're Calvinists here. This is, why, this is why you come to faith. It's because the Holy Spirit's changed your heart. And if that has happened, the result is a loving, forgiving spirit. So allow the Holy Spirit to walk back with you into your history as we sit here. Jesus brought in a new spiritual paradigm. We can no longer fake it by external religious activity. Oh, we can fool each other, but we cannot fool God. Our hearts are what concern Him. And so my question I want to leave with you right now is, how is your heart this morning? How's your heart? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge to you that... Uh, we unfortunately drift towards the external. We unfortunately try to impress one another um, with our fake spirituality. But fortunately, for our eternal condition, you see through that. You know exactly the condition of our hearts and you're committed to transforming us into your image. And so this morning, Father, we receive the work of the Holy Spirit joyfully, even as concerning as it may be to consider the reality of these things. We, we receive 
this instruction from Jesus Christ joyfully and hopefully with the anticipation that he will continue to do the work that he began in each of us, that moment of conversion, that moment of coming to faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that each person in this room would be doing honest business with you and the Holy Spirit. We ask that, that you would help us be loving people, forgiving people. We're so thankful that, Jesus, you initiated this new paradigm when you came, this new inward reality, this new reality that results in vibrant worship and joyful Christian living. Father, do your work in us. Spirit, do your work in us. Jesus, do your work in us. And we'll give praise and thanksgiving to you throughout eternity. Amen.